Welcome to The Gold Exchange with Keith Wiener, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. And now, on to today's episode. I think a lot of people believe or want to believe that in the wake of the COVID virus, you can shut down the economy or significant parts of it and then resume uh, the economy later. It's like hitting pause on the VCR. You know, you just stop it for as long as you need and then you just restart it. And they, they look at the economy and they look at projections now from Wall Street analysts and everyone is saying that there's gonna be huge growth and they think, okay, we did fine. And yeah, sure, a lot of small businesses, particularly focused in hospitality, Bars, restaurants, nightclubs, theaters declared bankruptcy. A number of retailers declared bankruptcy, but everyone else survived. Everyone else somehow made it through. And they kind of think of it like making it through an arduous ordeal. You know, you're hiking, you get lost, it gets dark. You know, you have a lot of climbing over mountains. You get lost in the forest at night. You know, you have a, a few moments of, of terror. You hear noises in the forest that you're unfamiliar with, but you know, you make it to the road by morning, you get picked up, you know, by the next day or the next week, you know, you're back to your life as, as, as it always was, unchanged. And that's the concept I really want to look at this. Nothing is different than it was before. Life goes on as it did before. Obviously, assuming you didn't get attacked and maimed by a wild animal and you're getting lost in the mountains in the forest ordeal, then life is unchanged for you. But in the case of lockdown in the wake of COVID, life is not unchanged. And obviously for those restaurateurs and bar owners and nightclub owners and retailers and many, many others uh, who are bankrupted, of course, life is not the same. Most small businesses, the owners are personally signing up to guarantee the debt. So if the business goes bankrupt, then the owner is personally taken down Uh, forced into a court-directed process in which he's stripped of his assets, his house, even potentially his cars, other things, his bank accounts are drained. You know, things are taken away from him and sold in order to satisfy the bank creditor. So when he's done, not only has he lost his business, but he's lost his shirt. But not even looking at those folks, which it's obvious that those people are not going to quote-unquote recover, those people have to get jobs if they can find them in this economy and then spend the next 10 or 20 years working to reaccumulate the capital that's been destroyed. And then at that point, if they still have enough youth, enough energy, uh, enough motivation, they haven't gotten sick and tired of the whole thing, then they could reopen another business and employ people at that time. But for certainly for now and for years, those people are wiped out and taken out of the uh, equation. But what about the, what about the companies that survive? What about the ones that made it through the forest? And um, it's easy from as an outsider, uh, especially if you don't really follow financial statements, you don't really think about these things too much. You know, what, what about those folks? Are they really truly unscathed? Is it simply that they had a scary moment, but now they're simply back to the same place they were before? And, uh, and the answer is no. Um, so I want to introduce a concept that um, is common in, in computer software development, or it was when I was involved in my previous career. As many of you may know, I was a software developer and built a software company, which I sold to Nortel Networks in August of 2008. And the concept from software development is stateless, or the, the opposite of stateless is stateful. And so uh, in software, it's considered the ideal to write functions that are literally functions in the mathematical sense. You may remember in algebra, f of x equals, um, you know, whatever, some, some uh, polynomial, uh, you know, 14 times x to the cubed 
plus uh, um, 6x squared plus 3.2x plus some constant. And, um, and so the function is literally, its output is determined by the value of x that you give as the input. And so people kind of tend to assume things in the economy are stateless because it's an easy assumption. It's, it's a facile, convenient, tempting way to think of things. I talk a lot about the quantity theory of money, this idea that the general price level is somehow proportional to the quantity of money. That is, if you double the, the quantity, then um, you know maybe with leads and lags, and the money enters a certain corner of the economy first, it rolls out or spreads the economy at some finite rate and so forth. But with quibbles aside, the, the quantity theory is basically saying, well, if you double the quantity of money, then you get um, you know maybe a doubling of, of the general price level or maybe if it isn't doubling, you know, maybe it's a 1.8 or a 2.5 or something like that. Um, and I keep pointing out counterexamples. In 1983, I bought Levi's jeans for $50. Today, I encourage everybody to Google the price of uh, Levi's 501 jeans, to be specific. I encourage everybody to, to Google that. This is a product that has not been cheapened by inflation. It's not been subject to, well, the jar of peanut butter is the same price, but the size is smaller. It's the same product as it was, and the price is lower. I found recently an example of Paps Blue Ribbon is selling a 99-pack of beer. That is 12-ounce cans of beer, 99 of them in one pack for $59. And I can recall in college in 1988 buying a 24-pack of, uh, I believe it was Coors, for $20. So the price of a can of beer is literally lower than it was. Uh, the third example is that Costco famously has, I think it's $1.50, I'm not sure now, a hot dog and a 20-ounce uh, soft drink uh, for the same price that they've had since 1984. That is 36 years later. 36 years of relentless increases in the quantity of what we call money, the dollar, and the price is literally unchanged. Levi's uh, jeans in 37 years have gone down in price. Beer has gone down in price in the last 32 years. If it were simply true, that a doubling of the quantity of what we call money uh, caused uh, anything close to a doubling in uh, general price level, then it just wouldn't be possible and you wouldn't be able to quibble but subsidies, but China, but this, but that. There'd be no way to say but. I mean, everything would be up, you know, a couple thousand percent. Uh, it wouldn't be a small gain. It would be, you know, a huge gain. Uh, for those of you old enough to remember the 1970s, uh, I was 12 years old in 1979, the official inflation rate, I think, was 13-something percent at that time. Um, but my, my recollection was every item in the grocery store every week had gone up in price. Um, it was obvious. It was massive. Everything was going up relentlessly. Uh, you didn't need um, a government statistic to tell you that prices were rising. They were screamingly rising. And now today we see examples of things that decades ago were more expensive than they are now or decades ago had exactly the same price. 36 years since you know 1984 when Costco has kept the price the same on this hot dog plus the soda uh, deal. You know, in, in the face of what is claimed to be rampant inflation, you either have to question your, uh, as, as the old saying, what do you believe, your hoity-toity theory or your lying eyes? Um, to be sarcastic, obviously you believe your eyes. So I, I make a number of criticisms of the quantity theory of money, and one of them, which is probably the least well appreciated of my criticisms, is that the quantity theory of money is a stateless theory. That is, it assumes that if you were to have doubled the quantity uh, in 1984, or if you were to double the quantity today, you'd get the same effect on prices, and that is prices would 
uh, you know, maybe approximately double or with some lead or lag or whatever. Uh, in addition to everything else I've said about the, about the quantity theory and why it's wrong, just looking at now this angle of things being stateless or stateful, we're dealing with human beings here. And um, these are the actors in the economy that are supposed to take the excess money that's created by the Fed and just go use it to bid up prices. People are stateful. I mean, if there's anything in the universe that ought to be stateful, human brains have, uh, human, human beings have minds, they have brains, and those brains remember things. I mean, forgetting, and I'll get to the balance sheet in a moment, but forgetting everything else, we have memories. Everybody who's old enough to have survived the crash of 2008 may perhaps place a greater premium on having uh, cash in the bank, uh, you know, versus what they were thinking back in 2006 before everything busted. And that, that, that reason for having that cash could be, uh, could be some pretty diverse reasons. It could be you always want to have dry powder because when a crash hits, you have to be there with liquid cash and you can pick up things for a great deal. You can get a bargain. That's one type of reason. And the other is if you're leveraged up to the hilt and you owe millions and millions and millions of dollars, let's say on your family farm or your small manufacturing business, then it's good to have uh, many months of monthly payment uh, in the bank because when the market goes haywire temporarily, um, as it did in, uh, let's call it fall 2008 through spring of 2009, or the market went pretty haywire in March and April this year, you want to have enough of a cash buffer to ride that out. This is a big part of banking regulation and so-called stress tests. Can a bank survive with whatever cash it may have on hand with the explicit assumption that the market is closed, the bank can't sell any assets at any price in order to raise cash in order to go on? So can you make it uh, just on, on your cash on hand? So the banks have to prove that they can, and, and anyway, people go back and forth about that stuff. So the point being that people are not stateless. They are stateful. That is, their brains retain state or state information, including what happened to them when they got burned in 2008. And just like uh, a cat that jumps on the hot stovepipe learns never to jump on hot stovepipes, uh, Mark Twain also observed that learns never to jump on cold stovepipes either, humans also learn these things and may also sometimes learn never to jump on cold stovepipes. So you do not get, if the Fed does whatever it does without getting into that today, to increase the quantity of what we call money, People don't necessarily react the same today as they would have reacted uh, in 1979. Uh, and we see that in, in the fact that prices are not rising ferociously and relentlessly aggressively as they were in the 1970s. It's not true that every item in every grocery store every week is up noticeably from the previous week, week after week after week after month after month after year after year after year. That's what it was in those days. That's what people are trying to claim that it is today. It just isn't so. So getting back to all of these, all of these companies, and I'm going to look at the hotel industry in a moment, who survived the ordeal, they got lost, they had to climb an arduous mountain, they had to get lost in the woods, and they heard some scary noises, and now they're back to exactly the same place they were before they were locked down, um, assuming that they were to be unlocked tomorrow. They're back to exactly the same place before the lockdown, and so everything's fine, and the economy is rosy, Put on your rose-colored glasses, folks. There's nothing to see here. Move along. Is that really true? And the answer is no. These companies all had significant expenses. They were burning cash for every day that they were closed. So if the government locked you down and said you're not allowed to operate your restaurant, your revenues went to zero. But of course, your expenses don't go to zero. You have some non-zero expenses. You have rent and you have uh, utilities and insurance. 
Um, and even if you lay off your hourly workers, you don't necessarily want to let go your head chef, your accountant, a few other people. It's taken you years to build a quality team. That's how you deliver a quality experience to your customers. You don't necessarily let those folks go. Um, and you have rent in your corporate office. In addition, if you run a chain of restaurants, the office wouldn't be in the back of one of them. It would typically be somewhere else. So you have all these expenses that are persisting, and yet your revenues are zero. So how could any restaurant or any bar or any nightclub, or any theater, uh, and any number of other industries, how could they survive through that dark period of getting lost at night in the mountains in the forest? And so the first thing they do is they burn their cash. So um, perhaps in some cases, if they were good and if they were maybe a bit lucky, March 11, the day before the lockdown, let's say this little restaurant chain had uh, $3 million in cash and no debt on the balance sheet. That would be kind of extraordinary. Uh, most businesses tended to be leveraged up for a lot of reasons, but let's assume they had $3 million in cash and no debt. And then let's say that every month they're locked down they burn $1 million, and that's with everything on a skeleton, you know, care, caretaker crew, you know, pairing everything to the bone. And let's say they're locked down. It was different in different states, but let's say you're locked down from March 12th. Let's say it was July that they were reopened. You know, so it's four months, and you had $3 million in cash. So you burn through the $3 million, and now you are uh, at zero. And let's say, again, you're very fortunate, and a lot of, a lot of them wouldn't be so lucky. They got some sort of loan some sort of credit, uh, and they got $2 million. And so the purpose of the $2 million is, is obviously you need, you need to pay for that fourth month of burn. You're burning a million dollars a month. You're, you're down for four months. You only had $3 million in cash. So you have to pay the expenses for the month, that extra month you were down. And then you need a million dollars in working capital because the day you open your restaurant, you have all the expenses. You have to buy a whole new fresh set of food. You have to clean everything. You have to hire a bunch of people probably a week in advance as you're retraining in the servers and other staff that have turned over in the meantime. Uh, so you have a whole bunch of expenses, uh, you know, before, you know, revenues are going to start hitting your account. So you need a million dollars in working capital. So you have now $4 million in debt. And let's even be generous and say that of that million in working capital, half a million is still cash in the bank. So you went pre-lockdown from $3 million in cash, no debt, to now you have half a million in cash, and $4 million in debt. That is precisely the condition that most people, including most trained economists, including the, uh, for lack of a better word, the salesmen and the promoters for Wall Street, this is what you'll see on financial television, this is what you're gonna see all over the place, including the, uh, the free market or you know, economists or even the otherwise free marketers, everyone is gonna say, you know, it's fine. Look, you know, this restaurant chain reopened, they didn't close anything. They're still, they're now recreating the same number of jobs they had before. The same number of locations are open. Everything is back to normal. We hit unpause and see it work. And the answer is, yeah, but that business went from $3 million in cash and no debt, which is a pretty good position to be in, to half a million dollars in cash and $4 million in debt, which is not a good position to be in. And so at the very least, there are several aspects to this that change the state this business is stateful, it's not stateless. There's several aspects that can be discussed about this. The one that I want to emphasize here is that there has been an increase in what could be called brittleness or fragility or, or peril for the business. A business that has three million in cash and no debt is pretty robust. I mean, anything could happen to it. Hell, it could be completely shut down for months and it has the resiliency 
to be able to bounce back, um, you know, after something horrendous like that. The company that has half a million in cash and four million in debt has lost all of its resiliency. So even though, yes, it's reopened and yes, revenues have restarted, although of course nowhere near their original levels. In most states, I live here in Arizona, uh, in Arizona certainly this is true, they are allowed to open at half capacity. And in addition to that, most restaurants are not even filling the half capacity because of, um, you know, the customers are scared and everything else. Uh, but even at half capacity, then in theory, they could be generating half the revenue. So uh, even that isn't the same. But even assuming the revenues are the same and the jobs were the same, this business has gone from being robust to now being brittle or, or perilously close to being forced to close its doors. It certainly doesn't have the means to survive any further, uh, it can't absorb any further impacts. The next time that something happens, you're gonna say, we only added one straw to the camel's back, and you're gonna say, crack, the camel's back breaks and the camel collapses. And we say, what happened? It was only one straw. Yes, but that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And that's why that concept is so useful. The camel's back is stateful. If it's the first straw, straw you're putting on it, no, nobody expects a camel to, to buckle under the weight but you keep piling one after the other, after the other, after the other, the hits keep coming. At some point, it no longer you know, can bear the weight and, and it collapses. And so this is a partial answer. There's a lot, of, a lot of other things to be said, but this is a partial answer to why the economy is not in nearly as strong a position as it was on March 11th, in, in addition to the companies that have failed, in addition to the tens of millions of people who have lost their jobs in many cases, those jobs have gone away permanently. Even for the businesses who survived, they've burnt cash, they've taken on more debt. And so I just came across an article about the closing of the Hilton Hotel in Times Square in Midtown Manhattan. You know, clearly one of the busiest tourist spots in the country, if not the world. Times Square Hilton is, is closing its doors, defaulting on its debts, uh, and that has uh, an impact on somebody else's state, which I'll get to in a moment. Um, and basically uh, defaulting and turning over, you know, whatever assets it has to its creditors. I don't know if it owns the building or who is just renting the building, but whatever assets it has go to its creditors. Uh, that hotel is finished. The article also mentioned uh, a number of other hotels, perhaps 30 or 40 hotels are going to close in New York City and whatever number that is that it is. But the article mentions that all the other hotels, remember all the hotels went to, you know, virtually zero revenues, you know, as a result of lockdown that the surviving hotels are the ones that survive so far. There's no guarantee they're going to continue to survive. All the hotels that have survived so far have been taking on debt in order to keep their, uh, you know, keep alive. Many of them are in default on uh, existing loans. They've reached, at least they've reached some of their covenants, which govern things like revenues, uh, you know, the ratio of revenues to, to debt service costs and so forth. Uh, so they're getting into deeper trouble with their existing debt, and they've taken on more debt in order to continue to survive as long as they have. Assuming that there was a magic wand that the New York State uh, governor and the New York City mayor uh, were to wave and then restart uh, the traffic and the tourism to Manhattan, which is a whole different story because that's not going to restart. But even assuming they could wave that magic wand and say we're going to restart everything, uh, these hotels all now have significantly more debt than they did before, and as a consequence of that, are significantly less robust than they were before, and as a consequence of that, are much much closer to the edge of failure and insolvency and, and turning everything over to their creditors. And so that's not a sign 
of uh, a robust economy, that is not a return to the same thing uh, as things were before. So if we were to use our analogy of you know, wandering, you know, getting lost off the path and, and going through this arduous ordeal, perhaps the combination of dehydration, you know, climate, climbing the mountains when you're maybe out of condition, you're a softy, used to civilization, the terror and the, the heart rate running to 200 beats per minute. Perhaps in the ordeal, the analogy would be you suffer just a little bit of brain damage um, and you suffer some heart damage as a result of that ordeal. And that sure, the next week, you know, you're safe and you're out of danger and everything's back to what it was. But as you walk around, you can feel that your heart doesn't have the strength it had before. And you feel a little bit of loss of mental acuity that you didn't used to have. And then everyone says, you know, you're fine, you're restored to what you were before. And you know, internally, not quite. You're not, as they say, you're not, you're not the man that you used to be before uh, going through that. That's what this episode or this article about the hotels in New York City demonstrates, is that even the ones that survive aren't the same. This is going on throughout our economy. The one last thing I want to say about this is that all of these hotels that have defaulted and handed the keys over to their lenders, as it were, um, now that affects the lenders. The lenders are not stateless either. The lenders are banks, maybe insurance companies, maybe pension funds, uh, maybe annuities. There's always somebody on the other side of the trade. You know, for every debtor, there's a creditor, and to the creditor, this is money. Now, these entities, banks, insurance companies particular, pension funds, and annuities, now have giant losses on their balance sheets. So if you just look at the pension problem, on March 11, most pensions were, they have a euphemism, it's called underfunded. Uh, what that basically means is they don't have enough assets to meet the liabilities and pay all the pensioners. They already were short. And now, you, you know, if they, own, if they own the bonds of X number of hotels that have just defaulted, now those bonds are no longer good. Now there's a loss on their balance sheet. Now instead, maybe they own a building or they own um, a hotel business that rents from a landlord in Times Square in Manhattan where all the theaters are closed, all the tourism is dried up. Even a lot of the people in the, in the city have now fled to other parts of the country. And now you own a hotel business with a mortgage paying a landlord, or maybe even own the building, that isn't the same thing as owning a bond that's paying the coupon every month. So for that pension fund, they are suddenly now in a more perilous position than they were before. And by perilous, I don't just simply mean they have a little more debt. By perilous, I mean they've gone from a little bit underfunded to a bit more underfunded, which means they're closer to the day when uh, they will stop paying their uh, pensioners. So the way a pension fund works, is my understanding, I'm not an expert in the law of pensions, is typically the pension fund keeps paying whatever its obligation is to the pensioners um, until it runs out of capital and then abruptly things fail. Or in some cases, they can petition the court and then they can say, okay, we have to give the pensioners a haircut. We used to pay $3,000 a month, but now we send a letter, dear pensioner, you know your $3,000 a month pension? Um, it's not $3,000 anymore, now it's $1,400, best of luck. Uh, take care and bye-bye. Uh, so now that the pension funds are suffering these losses on their uh, you know, hotel bonds and other commercial real estate bonds, then they get closer and closer to when they have to tell all the pensioners, by the way, you're not getting 3000 a month anymore, you're getting 1400 What are the pensioners going to do? They may default on their car payments, they may default on their mortgages, they may be forced to move out of their apartments and move into something 
uh, less expensive. They are going to spend less on uh, mobile phone bills and cable TV, going out to restaurants, all of the other things, and so the economy uh, you know, contracts further. All of these forces are now baked into the cake. It, it's still too early to really see you know, the majority of the effects, you know, the follow-on second and third order effects from all of this. Uh, but just looking at uh, the hotel business, even the surviving hotels, the point being, are stateful and are not in the same state that they were in uh, before, uh, before the lockdown. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Go to goldexchangepodcast.com to learn how you can earn a yield on gold paid in gold.